you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for the book of Exodus. So we're starting a new series, a new study, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Exodus. Super excited to uh, get started in this. Are you guys warm or cold? Is it, is it good in here or is it cold in here? It's just right. That's kind of what I think, but I get a little warmer than you guys do. But, um, so we, we just finished Genesis and we traveled through. We're going to continue right into Exodus. We're going to try to march through the Old Testament pretty much in order as we go through. We'll try to speed up as we get through some of the, the um, genealogy stuff and some of the laws and stuff as we get into Leviticus numbers, that kind of stuff. But so much meat and so much good stuff in Exodus. Exodus, there's so many different typologies and types in Exodus. So Exodus is the, um, you know, the, the Egypt is a picture of the world. And if you look back again on the 2020 of, of the whole venture from being slaves in Egypt all the way through to the promised land, every part of it is an exact picture of your Christian life, of my Christian life. It's exactly a picture of this side of the cross. Egypt is in the world. We all were, were in the world before we were saved. We were lost going through the Red Sea or crossing the Red Sea, leaving Egypt is a picture of, of being born again or leaving Egypt, leaving the world. The Red Sea can symbolize baptism, being led by a, a, a pillar of um, a cloud during the day, a pillar of fire at night. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit leading us in our lives. And that's, that's laid out for us in 1 Corinthians. Crossing over um, the Jordan River is, is entering the promised land and being filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit again. And the whole picture and the wandering in the wilderness and the longing to go back to Egypt and all of those things that we see all the way through this Exodus story are identical, exactly amazing God who, who wove all of these stories together perfectly. Millions of people and lives that tell a perfect story like only God could, could do in teaching and in, in preparing of the Christian life and of our experience. Um, Pharaoh is a type of Satan, just like in the Bible, typology. Um, Goliath is a type of Satan, a type of a spiritual battle or enemy. Pharaoh is a type of Satan in the, in the typology. The Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Amorites um, are, are types of the flesh and this battle with the flesh that we're always warring against. And every time you turn around, you see the Amalekites, the Canaanites somewhere, eventually it's going to be the Philistines, you know, poking into the, the side of the, of, of the nation of Israel. And it's a picture of the flesh and, and the, the age old battle that Paul describes for us that the, the spirit is, is willing, but the flesh is weak and the two war against one another, the spirit and the flesh. The word Exodus literally means the way out. And it's a book of redemption. And so it's, it carries that idea of redemption. And we know that there is no redemption apart from Jesus Christ. And that we're redeemed by the blood and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Exodus is a picture and a type also of, of redemption. So there's a little bit of gap. If you go back to Genesis, the last two words, three words in Genesis are coffin in Egypt. So he was dead in the world. And then, and, then, and then there's a 400-year gap between the last verse in Genesis and the first verse in um, Exodus. And the first verse in Exodus starts with the word. What word? What word? Now. Wake up. How now, brown cow? I got to keep you guys awake. Now. So now, the fact that it starts with the word now is a continuation, right, of what happened in Genesis. And so we have all of the history. And what's, what's interesting is you don't really, you wouldn't think this, but 
the life of Abraham, which is like Genesis 15, is the halfway point of the Old Testament. So the 4,000 year history that we have up into Christ is um, Genesis 15. Abraham was actually halfway. A thousand years to Abraham and a thousand years moving forward to Christ. And so all the rest of this is in that second thousand years. And so there are 400 year gap. And it says, it says, actually, before we, before we, we got one more thing kind of set up. Hey, turn back with me really quick to Genesis 15. So God gave um, Moses, Genesis chapter 15, in verse 15 and 16. And God gives Moses, um, sorry, Abraham. Now, now listen, just, just going to warn you now, okay? If you guys want to have like some signs like rub your ear, you know, I'll pick up on them. But I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put Abraham in the ark. I'm going to call Moses Noah through this series. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Abraham when I meant to say Moses. So just, you know, we're talking about Moses and you'll have to fill in the gaps when I, when I put the wrong name in the wrong place, but you'll know who we're talking about. So God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15 and he gave him a promise, a very important promise as we enter into Exodus. The first part of the promise is that God's people were going to multiply and be fruitful. And then the second part of the promise is that there would be four generations or 400 years for this to happen. And there's two reasons for the 400 years. We need to look at them. I think it's important. I think we need to point it out. So verse 15 of Genesis 15 says, Now as you, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For, in the, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So 400 years... God's people were to be in Egypt. And he told Abraham that. He gave Abraham that prophecy. You're going to die, but your people are going to return to Egypt. They're going to be there for four generations because the iniquity of the, of the uh, Amorites is not complete. Canaanites, Amorites, Amalekites, all the ites, the Echovites and the whatever ites, flashlights and termites and all the rest of the ites, you know, that, that are in the land. And so... So for 400 years, God is preparing his people for the land. And they went through tons of persecution. And what happened is they, they exploded in population and they grew. And God's people always grow in persecution. The early church, um, Peter and Paul and um, John and the apostles who started the early church, the early church grew through persecution. And, and through all the persecution of the, of the first century, the, the church completely exploded through that. And all the way through, people, God's people, we grow through persecution. We build character, we build patience, we build suffering and, and endurance, and we grow through persecution. And so for 400 years, and it wasn't always bad for the 400 years. It got bad, and we're, we'll see that. But God was preparing his people. And the other thing, there was safety in, 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 in Egypt. Egypt was the, the most powerful nation in the world. And... It was a fortified city, and so God's people... You know, there was only 75 people that were the Hebrews. Then The Hebrew nation was 75 people at this point. And, and so these 75 people, God says, I'm going to make you as numerous as the sand by the seashore, and I'm going to you know, build a nation out of you. And so God... You know, those 75 people just out anywhere with all these ites everywhere, and you know, one of the issues was safety. And so God put his people in Egypt, and there they grew. And then the exodus that left and went through the Red Sea on dry land, the Bible says 600,000 males. So everybody has a different number. I don't care what your number is. If every male, if you only count the males, so if I only counted the males in this room, including the kids and children, but we just counted the men, how many, you know, we have 25 men, and we have 60 people. So 
whether that number is four times, five times. So anywhere between two and three million people that Moses would have led through the Red Sea on the crossing of the Red Sea on the way out. So from in Egypt, they grew from 75 to two to three million and, and those were the group. And that's part of the reason. The other reason was, um, first one, to prepare the people for the land. And the second one was to prepare the land for the people. And what does that mean? That's why I read Genesis chapter 15. And, and I think it's important that we understand this. Um, one of the calls of Joshua, Lydia, Lydia's reading Joshua right now. And, and she just told me the other day, she's like, she's like, I knew it. I've read it like 15 times, but it just really hit me this time how like bloody and gory and like violent Joshua and the people were. And it's true. I mean, you, you read it and it's like, yeah, they went and they killed 30,000 people by the edge of the sword. And then you're like, wow, that's a tough day. And then the next day, oh, I killed 15,000 people by the edge of the sword. And, you know, it's just this is the way it reads. And there's just tons of battles and killing. And it's like bloody and it's violent, really, at, at times. And, and, and God tells um, Saul at one point, right, concerning the Amalekites, he says, go in and kill every man, woman, child. And, and yeah, you know, you, you can just say that, you can read it, you, but, but, but if you really think it through in your mind, right, and you, you picture a soldier killing a child, it's violent and it's difficult to understand that God made that call and that God did that. And for that reason, people feel like, you know, that's why they oftentimes will say there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. By the way, which is not true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God is a God of love and mercy, and He's not harsh, and He's not mean. He's kind, and He's generous, and He's loving, and He's gentle. And, and, and what He was doing, He told Abraham, because the iniquity of the Amalekites and the Canaanites. So for 400 years, God gave them opportunity to repent. He reached out to them. He, he, you know, and at some point, the reality is, if you have a dog with rabies, what is, what is the humane and gentle and right and kind and loving thing to do to that dog. You got to put it down, right? And not, not only do you have to put it down for the condition of the dog, but you have other dogs that are not rabid. And if that dog bites one of your other dogs, what's going to happen to that dog? He's going to become rabid. He's going to have rabies and, and, and it's, it's, it's ugly and it's a cancer. And at some point the cancer is incurable and, and you know, I hate to look at it this way, but, but if you look at God's grace in that, you know, e- even if you look at certain things today, demographics today, people today, all the children that they have, that they grow up and they, they train to hate and to murder. And you see four-year-olds in preschool who, who they give them plastic knives and dolls and they teach them how to cut heads off. And, um, you know, in Afghanistan, the sewers are called Jewies and the kids are grown up to, to, to hate and to, and, and just, but period, if you have a generation of people and God looks down and he sees this people and the children are growing up and they, they hate God and they hate and they serve a false God and they die without Jesus, where do they go? Where do they go? They go to hell and, 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 and kids are being born and, and civilizations and, and they're growing up and they're dying and God is reaching out to them and they're going to hell and they're going to hell and they're going to hell and in God's mercy and His grace and His love He's giving them visions and dreams and He's pouring everything out to them and they're not responding at some point if He cuts it off it's mercy, right? it's grace, right? He, he's, he's, he's saving you know, Jesus said at one point it'd be better if you were not born 
than, than to, to cause one of these little ones to go astray. And he lays out that idea that the, the reality is it's better if you were never existed than if you exist for eternity in, hev- in hell. Because once you're born and once you're, 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 you exist, like it or not, you're created to live forever. The question is not, will you have eternal life? You have eternal life. You are immortal. You're not immortal, but you are eternal. The only question is where you spend that eternity and whether you spend it in hell or in heaven. And so with the Amalekites, God tells uh, Abraham, 400 years, I'm going to give them the opportunity to repent, to repent, to repent. And at the end of 400 years, what happened was they were rabid. They were were, um, a cancer. They were a society that was such moral decline that, you know, CNN wouldn't even report this stuff. What was happening and what, what the kind of evils that were going on. And we know some of them. And, you know, the, the, the practices of, you know, their God was, one of their gods was, was, um, they, they, it was, it was molten metal and they would heat it up until the hands of the God was, was glowing red and they would place their babies in the, um, in the alt- altar to this God and the, you know, these false gods and these false servings. And so part of the 400 years that God's people stayed out of the land was God trying to save and, and give mercy to these people. And they never responded. And, and again, we have a demographic like that today in the same situation. The same thing's going to happen. God's going to pour out his spirit on them. God, God's going to judge them. God's going to deal with them. And so God judged the Amalekites. He judged the Canaanites. And there did come a point where, where the, the, they went in and they cleaned the land out. So That brings us to verse number one. It says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons for Joseph and Egypt was in Egypt already. So you add Joseph and his family, and that's how I get the number 75. In your margin, it'll say 75 in your Bible. Um, 70 people came down. Joseph, his wife, his three kids, five people. So the, the, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew nation, excuse me? You, you like that? I'm going to turn it up. Where's the volume? Give me a second. I got to turn that up. No way, I'm turning mine up. Um, so. 75 people that, that we're going to, that eventually are going to go to the 600,000 men, two to 3 million people. And it says in verse number six, and Joseph died all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. And so, you know, it is a staple of God's people. And, you know, I kept telling Herzl, our guide in Israel, you know, that God's people, and I was using the term God's people talking about the Jews, and I was telling him how much, you know, that they're blessed, they're God's people, and there, there does seem to be this success that, that's, that's within God's people. And, and without a doubt, right, God, God has blessed them, right? And so they're, they're you know, to, to this day, there's this boycott Israel kind of um, campaign. You'll see it all over the place, boycott Israel. This Jewish kid on Facebook today, I saw this little video, and he says, okay, and he shows all the signs and the protesters in New York City and all over the world, and they're boy- they have these boycott Israel signs. He says, I just want to help you guys out. You want to boycott Israel? And then he starts going through everything in your life that's Israeli-made, that, that's, that's invented and created in Israel. So basically, you'd have no cell phone. 
because most of the parts in your, in your iPhone, if you use any Apple products, most of those, not most, some of those um, parts are made in Israel. You can't use a computer, a laptop, a desktop, because that, all that technology is, is, in, is in Israel. If you have anything that's Microsoft, um, the processors are, are invented and created and produced in Israel. If you have an electric car or a battery, that's, that's, that technology for electric cars is invented. And he goes through all this list. And basically, by the time he's done, you've got nothing left. And you look at the picture. I've showed the pictures before. I should just keep it up all the time because I reference it all the time. But when Mark Twain went through Israel in like 18, in the 1870s, 1880s, um, it, was a, it was a wasteland. It was nothing there. And he shows pictures. And he said he walked for miles and didn't see another human being or a tree. or just. This, and he shows these you know, black and white old photos of what it looked like. And you go in that same place today. And it's lush. And it's... Um, agriculture and 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 what's amazing about israel is because of the the way the demographic and you have this little tiny country and, and you have you have a place that's um 800 feet below sea level at the sea of galilee and so it's tropical so they grow bananas and they grow um, um mangoes and um you know all these tropical fruits there and then you have up where you're high elevation and they have all kinds of different agriculture and their agricultural technologies and they're they're in agriculture in technology and in weapons and defense and in intelligence, they lead the world. And part of that you do attribute to, to just God's blessing, right? And, and then even just the people, there's just something about them that's special and that, that's unique. You know, there's a story Steve Harvey had a rabbi on the other day um, who who found ninety thousand dollars in some desk he bought at a garage sale for one hundred and fifty bucks, and he returned the money. And just talking to the guy, and you know, one of the things that was so such a highlight of my tour in Israel recently was just the people that I met. Just just amazing people, you know. And so anyways, I was telling Herzl, our guide, this, you know, and I'm like, yeah, Jewish people are amazing. And he, you know, I said, so blessed. And he, and he kept saying, no, 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 not any more blessed than you and not any more blessed than anybody else. God doesn't love us anymore. We're, we're, we're equal in Christ. We're, you know, and he just kept trying to bring me back down that, you know, and I think it was important to him that, that I didn't try to you know, put them above anybody else. And he didn't want to be above anybody else. And he recognized the fact that they were blessed, but said that, you know, you're just as blessed and you're just as loved and you're, you're just as cared for and all that. But here we see the nation of Israel and, and immediately you see this, this, this blessing upon them and, and they're, they're growing and they're, they're smart and, you know, and, and they really, they've, they've been successful everywhere they've went. And, and, and people hate that and it creates a jealousy and it creates a problem. And we know Satan hates them because um, the Bible is fulfilled in them. But here they grow and they prosper and they're doing well. And it says in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You know how many times I've heard Pastor Gerald say there arose a pharaoh who knew not Joseph? It's just, you know, every, I don't know, he just always says that little phrase, you know, in, in dealing in certain things that we're doing. And it always applies to certain life situations, you know, things we're doing. But here arose a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And it says, And he said to his people, Look, the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. So I, I want to talk briefly, and I want to tell you, I don't, I don't really have all my ducks in a row here, but I'm just going to give you what I got anyways. Um, so the 17th um, dynasty in Egypt is probably was a, was a Hiskos dynasty. So for whatever reason, there was foreign, the pharaohs were foreigners. They were foreign. They were, from, they were foreign. And then the 18th dynasty 
And, and so in the 17th dynasty is probably where um, Israel and Joseph came and led during the Hiskos dynasty because the pharaohs would have been foreign and then it would have probably been a little more acceptable to have a foreigner who's second in command. And then the, the power went back to Egyptians in the 18th dynasty. And the 18th dynasty of the pharaohs is probably where we're reading today. So, um, th- so we have, without a doubt, historically... We have Hebrew slaves building bricks and making things in Egypt, right? So we assume, I think among maybe Jewish and Christian circles, I've always assumed, I think I learned it in Sunday school somewhere, that the Jews built the pyramids. Now, if you go um, and, and you start researching that, just do a Google search, did, did Hebrew slaves build the pyramids, you're going to find all kinds of stuff. Lydia had an um, art history class while she was in college. And so many of her courses in college were anti-Christianity 101. It didn't matter what the topic was. It was math. And somehow the, the teacher would figure out how to, how to attack Christianity. Well, she had an art history class. What does art history have to do with religion and world religions? And the first lecture in the art history class was the teacher told the class that it was absurd, and she made this whole case that there were never slaves in Egypt. What's the point? The only point, the only reason why that's relevant is to attack the Christian students who believe what it says and believe the biblical account that, that the Jews were slaves in Egypt. And I can remember her coming home that day like, how does that, how is that even relevant to art history? That there were no Jewish, there were no Hebrew slaves in Egypt. Well, we know they were slaves. But we don't know if they built the pyramids. They probably did not build the pyramids, is my opinion. Um, there, if you go there today, um, the, the pyramids were, were made out of stone. And what, what were the Hebrews making? Bricks. So there are, to this day, there are walls, city walls, that, that are uncovered, that are made exactly of, of bricks that were made with straw, and exactly what it describes here, where, you know, less, and you could see right in the wall where there was, there was you know, where they were given less straw, and they had to go get their own, and it was harder to produce the bricks, and you could see how the bricks were nicer, and they were getting more messed up as they, they went up, as, as it follows the biblical account of the story exactly as it was. Could they have been used in slave labor and building some of the pyramids? Possibly, you know, as far as the time frame and that goes. Um, um, Menachem Begum, who was the first prime minister of Israel, when he went to Egypt, he made a statement and he said, we built those pyramids. <laughs> and nobody liked that, of course. So, um, and again, the pyramids are made out of stone. The pyramids are, um, they're very warm. It's very hot in Egypt. Um, you know, if you go into the pyramids and, and these stone buildings, it's like you, you're sweating, you can't breathe. It's really hot inside there. And the pyramids are, are, are burial. They're, they're, they're tombs, basically, is what they are. And the pharaohs believed in, in life after death. And this, this thing was the bigger and grander that your tomb was and all this stuff. So they're, they're basically were tombs. So the houses weren't built that way. The houses weren't built with these stones. The houses were built with mud and bricks and, and a different type of building and that, that, that has a natural kind of, um, you know, insulation built into it. And, and the Nile River is really the only life in, in this area, you know, in Egypt. And the Nile River, it's green and it's lush, but so much of Egypt is just <clears throat> desert, like sand and dunes. And, and, and so much of that sand covered up all this stuff and has later been uncovered and discovered. And, and you can go and see some of these walls and some of these things that... <clears throat> that match the biblical account. And so some would probably argue that the Jews built the pyramid. Some would probably argue that they didn't. But without a doubt, regardless, it's, it's irrelevant, right? 
to the fact that the Jews were in Egypt, they were slaves, they built something with bricks that they made and fashioned, and you know the the Egypt, as far as you know the world is concerned in building of the pyramids they they they're they're incredible feat to this day. we cannot figure out how they moved those stones. I mean we can't do it with some of the power equipment and some of the technology that we have today e- egypt um, in the area of mathematics and um, figured out the the distance between the earth and the sun and and all of these amazing things that that today you know it takes supercomputers to figure out and they were so technologically advanced and in their uh like i said in their ability to build and move these stones and bring them up on top of each other and the design of the pyramids was you know amazing what they did and so part of you thinks that you know maybe maybe god's people did have something to do with that so you guys figure it out and it says in verse number um, 10, so they had a problem. They had an immigration problem. The Pharaoh who knew not Joseph understood that the, the Hebrew people were growing. They were, they were getting smarter. They were, they were industrious. They were building. They were starting businesses. They were doing really well. And they had an immigration problem. And he said, you know, they're, they're going to they're gonna outnumber us. They're going to outpower us militarily. They, they're going to overtake us one day if we don't do something. And it says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Verse number 10, lest they multiply and it happen in the evening of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pythium and Ramesses. So we know without a doubt, doesn't say pyramids, right? It says supply cities. They built supply cities um, for for these, these two places. And in verse 12, it says, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the church grows under persecution. They grew under persecution. Verse 13, and it says, the more, the more they put their thumb on them, the more they grew. Verse 13, So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. So even in the, in the Passover, there's some, tons of of symbols and types of Christ. Even today, the, the Seder dinner, the, the dinner, it's getting ready to be Passover in, in Israel. And um, they'll go through the whole ceremony and they'll go through the Seder dinner and they'll, um, and every aspect of it is Christ and you see Christ. And so one of the parts is in remembering Egypt was they have this part of the ceremony in the Passover dinner and in this, this celebration where they, they have like horseradish and bitter type of, of food that reminds them of the bitterness in this, this verse here in Genesis. I'm sorry, in Exodus of this time. In the middle of 14, it says, In mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service and in the fields, and the service which they made for them was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other was Pua. And they said, sounds like some uh, Tongan women or something. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birthing stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then you shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. What I love in that is it says that they feared God. And so without a doubt, there was a worship of God and the midwives who were pagan, who, who, who had all kinds of gods. When we get into the plagues of Egypt, the 10 plagues of um, that Moses, they're not um, random. Every one of them deals with one of the 10 
um, pagan gods um, that, that, the, that the, the Egyptians served and deals with and shows God's superiority and dominance over the, the Egyptian gods. And so these pagan women, they fear Jehovah. They fear Yahweh. They fear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How does that happen? It only happens if, if, if the Hebrews are, are giving testimony, right? If they're living their lives in such a way that they're introducing their God, they're serving their God, they're, they're in such a way that the people that are around them are being affected by it. And, and that's how we're supposed to live our lives, right? In such a way that, that the pagans around us, their lives are affected. Uh, our environment is infected by, by our lives. And so the women feared God. And so they have this um, civil disobedience. And when is civil disobedience okay? Well, we see biblically, right? We studied Pastor Jackie taught on Sunday that civil disobedience against the call of Nebuchadnezzar when the music began to play to bow down and worship and God's people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't bow down. And they were right for it. I mean, it tells us in Romans and God's will, Old and New Testament, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's will, it says that, that we should be subject to the, the governing authorities that are over us. It tells us to pray for our, our leaders. So we're to pray for President Obama. We're to pray for our congressmen, for our senators, for our local leaders. It says to pray and to be in submission under the, the governing bodies that are over you. So God's, God tells us to be obedient. But there does come a point, right, where civil disobedience is, is um, the right thing to do. You know, there's going to come a day and there may come a day where pastors and it's already happening a little bit where where pastors can be arrested for teaching Romans chapter one or saying that homosexuality is a sin against God, that that can be punishable by a crime. And when that day happens, then they're going to lock me up. Right. Because um, so we see Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who demonstrate a godly civil disobedience uh, uh, years later. Um, Daniel, in the same group, right? Daniel ends up in the lion's den, the same reason. They, they came up with this law and they said, the only way we're going to get Daniel, the only way we're going to trip him up if it's something according to his God and his, and, and, and his, his religion. And so they, they went to the king and they knew that it would play to his ego. And they said, we, we, we want to make a decree for 30 days. Nobody can pray to anybody else but you. And the king went for it. And, and then Daniel, it says, as was his custom. Daniel didn't just go and purposely defy the law or do something to, you know, just, just be disobedient or, or rebellious. It was his custom. It was something that he was customarily do. He opened his windows and he faced Jerusalem and he began to pray. And, and they went and they arrested him. They threw him in the lion's den. And then we see John and Peter, same thing, right? They get arrested. They're preaching the gospel. They're taken out. They, they're, they're scourged. They're beaten up. And they're told, do not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they said, well, you know, whether, whether we obey man or God, you know, you, that's for you to decide. But as for us, we will obey the Lord. And they went right out and they began to preach in the name of Jesus. And so there, there does come a time where, you know, God's law supersedes man's law. You know, abortion, for example. You know, God's law supersedes man's law. And so thankfully, you know, they, they didn't. And it says, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are, like, are not like Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives can come to them. 
you know, it, it was probably true. There were some hardy women, you know, and just the reality, you know, it's like, it, it used to be that way, right? Like when you had a baby in the forties and the fifties, like they didn't want you to get out of bed for a week. And, you know, if you had surgery, it was the same way and kind of the way that, you know, health is going now. And it, it, we, we've learning that the quicker you get up and you get back after it, you know, it, it's better sometimes for your body rather than, you know, to rest too long to get going. And so these, they, they were having babies and back out in the field the next day. And it was, it turned out to be a good thing. It turned out to make them healthy and hardy and, you know, they could, they could do it. And they, they didn't need two weeks off when they had a baby. They were, they were some hardy women, you know, I was going to tell a birth story about Lydia, but we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> and then it says um, in verse 20, Therefore God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. So um, God blessed the midwives for their civil disobedience, for their, their fearing Him and for helping the Hebrew women and not killing the, ma- the male children. And, and God gave them children as a result. Many of the midwives who didn't have children couldn't have children. God opened their wombs and they were blessed. And, and so God blessed them as they took care of his people. The promise is the same, right? It's valid for you and me today. I live by it. I will bless those that bless thee. I will curse those that curse thee. Nationally to Israel as a nation and individually to Jewish people as, as individuals. That that is a promise for you and I. Uh, according to God's word. And here we see an example where God blesses these midwives, these pagan midwives, because of their kindness to his people. And it goes on in verse 21, and it says, And so it was because of the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And so here we have one of the first, um, you know, Attacks upon the Jewish people with murder and genocide. And so, uh, although it's just the men here, so or the boy children, where they're throwing them into the Nile River. And it goes on in chapter 2. I want to try to finish chapter 2. It says, And a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife, a daughter of Levi. So the first verse, um, as, it, as it reminds us in Hebrews chapter 11, is, a, is an act of faith. He, Pharaoh is killing the male children. And these, this young couple, they get married anyways and get pregnant and have children um, in faith. And it was, just, it, was a, it was an act of faith in God. And so the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now, I don't know about you, but a mom who sees the child was beautiful, I guess because the Holy Spirit records it, I'll take it as bond. But, you know, no matter what that child looked like, he could look like Rocky Dennis. And she'd have been, oh, he's so beautiful. You know, mother's love. And so... According to her account, Moses was a beautiful child. And, and then in verse 3, it says, But she could no longer hide him. When she could no longer hide him. Uh, he was about three months old, so he was probably starting to cry. And at that point, the soldiers, if they heard him cry and found a male baby, they would have murdered him. And it says, So she took an ark of bulrush and built for him, dubbed it with asphalt and pitch, slime and pitch, it says in the, in the King James, and put the child in and laid him in the reeds by the river of the banks. Does that sound familiar to anybody? What did Noah build? An ark, and what did he what did he what did he cover it with? Slime and pitch, and so no doubt they knew the stories, and no doubt again an act of faith, and and she saw that God saved Noah and his and his and his daughters and his sons son in laws, and that um, he did it with an ark, a pitch, and and so she knew the stories of the word, and she put her son in in God's hands, and she built this ark, and um, and she she floated him down the river, and it says. Um, in verse 4, and his sister stood afar off. That's Miriam. Would have been Moses' sister. 
to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. So no doubt God uh, prompted Moses to give a cute little cry right at that moment. And, and her heart melted as she saw this child. And it says, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said, Wow, that's a good idea. Why didn't I think of that? So the maiden went and called the child's mother. How cool is this story? And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman and the child nursed him. So not only is she going to get to nurse her own son and bring him up in safety now, but the Pharaoh's daughter is going to pay her to do it. And no doubt it would have been hard. She was going to and is going to have to give him back. But, you know, we, we know at 40 years old, the Bible says that Moses identified with the Hebrew people and he chose um, to suffer afflictions than, um, you know, than the passing pleasure of sins. And he went and he saw an Egyptian harming a Hebrew and he killed the Egyptian because he identified with the Hebrew people. But h- how did he identify with Hebrew people? If he was given up as a child and, and raised in the ways of, of, of the Egyptians, then the, the only way is that in this time that his mom spent with him, that she instilled in him, she poured into him, she taught him, she loved him, she, she prayed for him, she encouraged him, and she, she instilled something in him. And I, I don't know how old he was when she gave him back, but old enough that, that, that he could start to receive these things that his mom was pouring into him and this identity. And maybe, you know, in, in, a, in the adoption situation as his life as a teenager, and, you know, he, he looked around and he's like, how come all my brothers and cousins are all really dark and I'm not, you know, and, and they, maybe they told him, you know, you're a Hebrew. And, and at some point he knew, but without a doubt, it, it definitely took his mom here pouring into him and um, praying for him. You know, in our nursery, we, we, we want to give the children the, the word of God and the love of Jesus at every age. And so obviously we're not taking babies in the nursery and, um, you know, teaching them the book of Revelation for a half an hour. But we can tell them Jesus loves you. We can pray for them. We can encourage them. We can minister to them. We can whisper in their ear and make sure that we pray over them and love on them and, and instill that in them from, from the young age. And then when they get two, three, four years old, then we can sit them down and we could go next level and teach them a little Bible study and tell them Jesus loves them and pray with them and pray for them and encourage them to pray out loud and teach them. And it goes on and it says... And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he and so it doesn't say how, how old he was. It just says the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. So Moses means drew, drew or drawn, drawn out of the water. And so um, it says in verse 11, Now it came to pass in these days when Moses was grown. So Moses is now, in verse 11, 40 years old. So between verse 10 and 11, Moses is 40 years, or depending on how old he was, if he was 3, if he was 5, if he was 2, when she brought him back, we have that gap. He's 40 years old now. Moses' life breaks up in two, and God just did it this way, um, three perfect 40-year periods. 
He was 40 years old when he killed the Egyptian and left and, and ended up in the wilderness. He spent 40 years in the wilderness in Midian. So he spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness wandering and uh, raising his family and being a shepherd and being retrained by God. And then when he was 80 years old, the, the bush was on fire and he went over to it and God began to speak to him and called him to, to, to go and, and speak to Pharaoh to let my people go. He was 80 years old. He died at 120. So his life breaks up into three perfect 40-year um, groups. And so, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but, you know, like you guys seen the kids' movies about Moses or maybe the old Charles, Charlton, Charleston, Heston, what, what's his name? Charlton Heston? Charleston. Charles Heston. I don't know why I wanted to put the two together. Charles Heston, you know, even in that, Moses, while the, he was in Egypt, he was a warrior and he was a tough guy and he has a brother that he's battling who's going to be the next pharaoh. And none of the Bible doesn't give us any of those 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 accounts, but history tells us that that Moses was a general in Pharaoh's army, that he was a decorated soldier, that he actually had won um, and led a battle of a, of a big victory um, for the Egyptian army. That he was decorated, he would have been um, very wealthy. He would have drove. I say this all the time. He would have drove a BMW to high school. You know, he would have had everything. He would have been, um, he was very educated. The New Testament tells us that Moses was very um, wise and educated person. He would have been educated in all the ways of Egypt and all the fine wine and luxuries of Egypt. He, he would have been a soldier. He would have been a man's man. Everything that the world has to offer, he would have experienced and lived and had to the finest and the nth degree and very possible that he was going to be the next Pharaoh of Egypt and that he, he was in line to be um, the, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And that's what he walked away from. And it says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and he looked that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Which way did he look? This way and that way? Which way did he forget to look? <laughs> so somebody was watching him. You know, he, he didn't, and we do that in our lives. We look this way and we look that way, but we don't look up. We look at circumstance, we look at solutions, but we don't look up. And so, you know, and, and such a lesson, and, and King David is such a beautiful picture in life for us of this lesson of uh, when David looked up and sought the Lord and asked God's wisdom before he made a decision it was successful when David stepped out on his own and looked this way and that way and never looked up and talked to God then it, it, it falls apart people die there's consequences um, and so here Moses forgot to look up and forgot to seek the Lord and um, and he took it into his own hands and whenever we do that it's trouble and it says he killed him and the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand so the fact that Moses kills this guy um, kind of speaks to who he was. Like he, he was a man's man, right? He was a soldier. He'd been in battle. He had no, no trouble killing this guy and burying him in the sand. So, you know, later, luckily, the, Moses was the most humble guy that, that the world has ever seen. We know that because Moses told us that. But, you know, good thing he was a new creation in Christ and he was, he was a changed man after 40 years in, in, the, in the wilderness you know, because if, if you started complaining and want, wanting, you know, manna or meat, Moses might have just killed you and buried you in the sand somewhere. But here it's, it says in verse 12, it says, or verse 13, And he went out the second day, and behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to one, one 
who did the wrong? Why are you striking your companion? You know, he didn't understand. He's like, you know, you have enough trouble, you guys. You're, you're, the, the, the Egyptians are, are hurting you and, and oppressing you. And here you are fighting with one another. Cut it out. Why, why are you striking your companion? And then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. So somehow the word got out. Moses kind of thought that he got away with it and nobody knew. He goes back in town the next day, runs into two Hebrew guys, and they already know about it. So he's like, how did that word spread so fast? How does... So obviously everybody knew it wasn't going to be long before the Pharaoh knew, before the word got out. And it says, so Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs with water of their father's flock. And then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to rule, their father said, how is it that you have come so soon today? So this poor guy, he's a farmer, he's a shepherd. You know, he has he has his first child and it's a girl. And he's like, Lord, I just need a, I need a, I need a boy to help on the farm. And number two is a girl. And number three is a girl. And number four is a girl. And he's just begging by this point. I just need a boy to, to do some, carry some weight around here. And seven times, he probably gives up after seven, all girls. So the girls have the responsibility of what, there's no brothers. And so they have to water the flock. So what was happening was they were going down to the wells. They would draw the water. They would fill the troughs. And then the other shepherds would come and bully them, basically, water all their flocks and leave. Then the girls would have to redo the work twice so they could water their father's flocks. And this particular day, Moses is there by the well, and the girls come and the bullies come, and Moses holds the bullies off and says, no, that's not fair, it's not right. Um, The girls were here first, they did all the work, he watered their flock, he actually drew the water for them and helped them. And then they got home, and when they got home that day, their dad's like, that normally takes you like five hours. You did it in two today. How'd that happen? Well, we only had to do it once. We didn't have to draw water because there was a guy by the well and he helped us out and he, he kept the bullies off our back. And it says um, in verse 19, and they said an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherd. And he also drew enough water for us and wa- watered the flock. Was Moses an Egyptian? Was Moses an Egyptian? No. Was Moses an Egyptian? No, he's not an Egyptian, but he looked like it. Was Joseph an Egyptian? No, but did he look like it when his brother showed up? Yes, he would have looked like it, right? He would have taken on it. So Moses, he looked like an Egyptian. He dressed like an Egyptian. You know, maybe the, 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 the hieroglyphics are true and they wore eye makeup and little goatees and Moses would have looked like an Egyptian. And so they said an Egyptian did it. And, then, and so his, the dad says, so he said to his daughters, and where is he? What's wrong with you people? I got seven daughters and you got a guy that's nice at the well getting water for you. Why don't you bring him home? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And then Moses was content to live with the man and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. So a couple things here. Um, First one is that that Moses married a blank bride. What kind of bride did Moses marry? A what? A Gentile bride. What kind of bride did Joseph marry? A Gentile bride. What kind of bride did Christ marry? A Gentile bride. Not that there's not 
Jews and Gentiles alike, but it's, a, it's again, it's a type of Christ. It's a type, it's a picture, and it, it paints a picture for Jews today that have blinders on their eyes that, that the fact that, that, that God um, grafted in the Gentile nation and that we are the bride of Christ and that the bride of Christ primarily is a Gentile bride. And so not to say that there's not uh, Messianic Jews, there's tons, but for the most part, the bride of Christ is, is Gentile. And so for the whole concept for, for Jews to, to, to swallow, God gives us multiple places in the Old Testament where huge, prominent Jewish patriarchs, characters take Gentile brides. And so Joseph was one. We saw that in Genesis. And here we see Moses um, who, who takes a Gentile bride. The second thing, it says that Moses was content to live with the man. And, and you know, th- this, this idea in, in Christianity and, and in our lives, right, is something that we just have to be on guard for. You know, Lydia and I were content to, to stay in, in, Tewil, or in, Ute, in Yucca Valley. There, everything was good. Everything was good. Her family was there. My family was there. She had a good job. I had a good job. Kids were in private Christian school. Their, their teachers were friends of ours who loved our children and can't, can't put a value on, on, a, on a teacher in a school system where your kids are loved for who they are by their teachers. That, that's super, super, that was hard. And we were content to stay there, but God didn't call us to stay there. And eventually it wasn't going to continue that way. When, you know, when God calls for, for fruit on the vine and you don't give it, the fruit that is on the vine will rot. And, and so there was a time to go, but being content is something we have to be careful for. We don't necessarily want to be comfortable or content. We want to be in the will of God and where God's called us and what God's told us to do and being obedient in that. And, and Moses was content to stay there. Was it God's plan for Moses to stay in Midian forever and die there? Live a normal life raising sheep and just die a happy, happy camper there? No, that would have been a huge tragedy, right? I mean, God would have brought his people out of Egypt. He would have used somebody else. But, but Moses was content to stay there and God had to, to step him out of that and bring him out of that. And it says, And she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So this, this whole concept of being a stranger in a foreign land, can you think of any place where that fits in the New Testament? Jesus said that you, you, we are not of this world. Paul uses the analogy multiple times that we are sojourners, that we are just passing through, that, that this, this is not our home that this, this body, this life is a tent and that our, that our eternal dwelling is, is in heaven where, where our mansion, where our eternal living is. We, we, we live in a tent. We have a tent. This life is just a tent. It's temporary. And this place is not our home, right? The big craze, N-O-T-W, bumper stickers, hats, clothes, shoes, everything, you know, N-O-T-W, that whole concept that, that, that we're sojourners. We're, we're passing through. We're, we're in this world, but not of this world. And because what we have now is temporary and it's a tent, we, we don't want to over-invest in it. How many of you guys have a, you know, you, the most valuable piece of furniture, whether it's a painting, whether it's a, a, a jewelry, or it's something that sits on your mantle that's made of gold? And how many of you guys go tent camping and, and bring your tent out to wherever you go camping and you, you bring this with you and put it in your tent and hang it up and decorate your tent with it. You don't take your Picasso and, and put it in your tent because it's temporary. You don't over-invest in, and, you know, in something that's temporary. And that's, that's the lesson is that we're sojourners, we're passers through. And then it goes on and it says, um, so he named his son that, Gershom. 
because I've been a stranger and a sojourner. And, and where is our home? It's in heaven. And, and really, we don't die. If you're a Christian, you don't die. You move. So when I die, don't say I died. Say he moved. He moved to his eternal home. And now it happened in verse 23, in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And, and that's the same part of the covenant that we read in Genesis 15. It's the same covenant that he repeated to Isaac and then again to Jacob and, and it, it lives to this day. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. So when it says that God remembered his promise, do you think like God forgot? And then he was like, oh yeah, those people, the Israelites, the Jews, oh, I forgot I had them down there for 400 years. No, obviously not, right? Not, not in the sense that God remembered like he forgot and now he remembers. Last thing, let's, let's read this. We're probably going to read this multiple times through, through, through this story. But turn with me really quick to Hebrews and we're going to end here. And let's just see what the Bible says about, about Moses and his life in the New Testament. Or one of the places. Moses is mentioned in the New Testament. And then, by the way, who wrote the book of Exodus? Who, who, but Moses is a baby in the book of Exodus. He's born in the book of Exodus. Who wrote Genesis? Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, so, you know, obviously the stuff that happened before he was alive, thousands of years before he was alive, creation account, all of those accounts were, were eventually we know that, that, that the Holy Spirit dictated to Moses and he wrote as the Holy Spirit inspired and it's word for word exactly the way that God wanted to write it. But those, those traditions were written down, they were passed down, they were, you know, we, we have here where maybe they didn't have written scriptures, but we had um, uh, Moses' parents um, Amram and Jochebed, and they knew the scriptures, and they knew the the ark and the pitch and the slime, and they so they knew the stories and the pictures, and so it was at some point Moses began to record all of these stories, all the way from the beginning Genesis all the way through to even after he died, um, things that were recorded. So Hebrews eleven, let's look at verse twenty three. It says, by faith, Moses, this is the beginning part. So we go all the way through, um, you know, it starts with, with Adam and Eve, goes to Abraham, um, Jacob. It's interesting, little verse on Joseph, verse 22. Joseph, what, what's mentioned with Joseph to me is so interesting. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of his departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. He didn't want to be buried in Egypt. He wanted them to take his bones back to Israel, back to Judah, um, and be buried there. And so that's the part that, the, the for some reason, that's a huge thing of faith that he didn't want to be buried in Egypt. And that's the part of all the story of Joseph. That's the part that the Holy Spirit records for us is that by faith he didn't want to be buried in Egypt and he gave instructions concerning his bones. I guess because of it must have took the faith for him to realize that, that God was going to deliver him and God was going to bring them back to the promised land and he wanted his bones brought with him. And in verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. We just read that because they saw he was a beautiful child. Well, Exodus tells us because his mom saw he was a beautiful child. So maybe we just put an asterisk there. And they were not afraid of the king's command. So the civil disobedience on their part as well. And by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Such a key, important, pivotal verse in every one of our lives. And how often do we fail in this point? We, 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 we want to get high. We want to get drunk. We want to have sex outside of marriage. We want to we do things. We want to entertain things that are a passing pleasure of sin. That is a minute time. And I see so many people who, who throw away their entire lives for, for 20 minutes of pleasure. You know, they have an affair and it destroys their kids. It destroys their, their wife, their relationship, eventually their job for 20 minutes. It's crazy, right? It's a passing pleasure of sin, but we're all guilty of it. Nobody's exempt. Nobody's pointing fingers at anybody else unless, you know, we're pointing at ourselves and I'm pointing at myself. But that's the reality. We, we, we trade huge blessings and we trade huge um, things for these passing. And that's a battle that we're in that we want to get on the winning side of where we start, you know, doing as Moses did. And we don't want to do that. And it says, um, I'm going to read it one more time. Verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than treasures in Egypt for he looked to um, to the reward really quick you guys we are going to be done quick just give me a few more minutes seconds um, what I like about this is who, who's who's mentioned in verse 26 well, why would Christ be mentioned in the life of Moses it says that that esteeming the the reproach of Christ greater riches than treasures in Egypt. So, you know, I'll say sometimes this term talking about Old Old Testament like Christian or Christ or, you know, knowing that, that Christ was not, not even born for another 500 years, 600 years. But the, the concept is still valid. The idea that, you know, that was, it was unto Christ and that Moses did it unto Christ and that they were Christian and those types of things. It's still okay and it's kind of retro for, for God's people in the Old Testament. And it says, um, verse 27, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Amen? Let's stand. Exodus is going to be cool, you guys. It's going to be fun. I like it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for the the book of Exodus. We thank you for these stories. We thank you, God, that we see Christ in the Old Testament. We see Christ in the life of Moses. We see Christ all the way through the Bible. And and we look in the New Testament and it it mentions Christ and points us back to Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the story of Moses all the way through the book of Exodus until the the crossing the Red Sea. And and every step of Moses' life, starting with his parents, the Word of God says that it was done by faith, by faith. And, and even as Pastor Gerald came and shared that, that let us live by faith. And that's our prayer tonight, Jesus. Let us live by faith. Or let us step out and, 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 and take new territory in Tooele by faith. And God, let us live by faith. And let us live by, um, Lord, just, just amazing faith, God, of, of, of doing and believing the unseen. And believing you, God, for miracles and amazing things to happen in our lives with our children, with our, with our jobs, with our work, with our finances, and, and with, with our ministries. In every way, God, that we would live by faith in Jesus' name. Amen.